Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And this is the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, exploring contemporary Buddhism at the edge and at play in the great feast of knowledge. Sponsored by O'Connell Coaching. Visit imperfectbuddha.com coaching if you're interested in exploring the themes that emerge in this podcast and engaging with the challenges of a contemporary spiritual practice. Today's episode takes a slight detour from this series on the practicing life, although we do get in some practice questions in the second half of the conversation, and it does get mildly personal there, so don't give up entirely if that's all you're after. Today's conversation is really, though, about a book that's just come out called Be the Refuge by Chen Zing Han. The book is concerned with raising the voices of Asian American Buddhists. Now, before you panic, if that's not your thing, it's actually a rather interesting read. We do, of course, live in a moment of activism, racial politics, identity politics, and some practitioners out there will certainly have an allergic reaction to hearing about this. But as you most likely know, I'm not a big fan of identity politics, so why would I have a conversation like this. Well, the book is not some preachy manual for getting rid of your white privilege or addressing your unconscious racism. It's an interesting exploration of the place and role of Asians in American Buddhism more broadly, and many of the themes are applicable beyond America. It has a narrative style as well, which, although being informed by academic practices, means that it really isn't an academic text in terms of style. It is one of those books which I think would be useful for many Americans to read, however, as it paints a picture and, in doing so, breaks many of the myths of the individual practitioner focused entirely on meditation. We talk about culture, the role of culture in practice. We look at how Asians have been present and often silenced or ignored, in the history of modern contemporary Buddhism. It involves a great number of interviews with different Asians in America, and I think that's the heartening part of it, because it's not just a rant about being ignored, but it's a balanced take on the richness of Buddhism in America. Chen Zing has written for a variety of publications, including Buddha Dharma, the Journal of Global Buddhism, Lion's Roar and Tricycle, she studied at Stanford and got an MA in Buddhist Studies from the Graduate Theological Union, and she's also studied chaplaincy at the Institute of Buddhist Studies in Berkeley. And she worked in spiritual care at a nearby community hospital in Oakland. Welcome back to the Imperfect Buddha podcast. Today I'm talking to Chen Zing Han author of Be the Refuge, a book that we're going to be talking about. Before we get into the specifics of that, there's a term from the book, Chen Zing, that I have to ask you about. Uh, I've never heard it before. Can you tell me what is a banana Buddhist? It sounds like quite an awful term. It It is. It was a term that an anonymous blogger named the Angry Asian Buddhist came up with, I suppose. And banana is really a racial slur used to describe Asian Americans who are seen as being Asian on the outside, but white on the inside. And when the angry Asian Buddhist was using this term, he said it in a kind of tongue-in-cheek way. But what he was really thinking about was the ways that when he looked in popular media, there weren't so many representations 
of Asian American Buddhists. So he was talking about an Oriental monk figure, which the scholar Jane Iwamura has written about. And he thought there's also kind of this trope of there being superstitious Asian American immigrants. And then he sort of came up with this third one of this, well, if culture doesn't really matter and you have Asian American Buddhists maybe who are just doing all the same things white Buddhists are doing, then they're kind of just banana Buddhists. Wow. <laughs> So yes, you're right that it is, it is, you know, as the title of the blog suggests, it's, I think in some people would find it very offensive. Some people would take a pause actually and think this is maybe an incendiary phrase, but beneath it, there's actually quite a lot to think about. Yeah. And I think that's why I wanted to start with that, because as I said, having never heard it before, it just seemed at first glance, something quite outrageous. You've written this book. It's a great title, by the way, but I think, again, the title, like the term Banana Buddhist, kind of invites a further question. So if we're talking about Be the Refuge, it sounds almost like a, a call to action. Or could it be a statement regarding some kind of historical reality? Which one is it? Can you can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. The title, actually, I have to give credit again to the Angry Asian Buddhist, as people who read this book will find out the angry asian buddhist wrote anonymously from you know about 2011 until his sadly untimely death in 2017 and the first blog that he actually really blogged with was a group blog called dharma folk he started it with a, some buddies in southern california and as he wrote more and more he started thinking more about asian american buddhist identity and so he didn't want to take up too much room on the group blog and that's how he came to start the angry Asian Buddhist. But towards the very end of his life, when he was unexpectedly diagnosed with cancer, he started thinking more about what it meant to be a refuge in, when he was in the hospital, how his own Buddhist practice provided a sense of refuge for himself, but also for his family, his friends, you know, all the people in the hospital who are taking care of him. And I actually think of it as kind of a natural progression from the Angry Asian Buddhist, because even though the title really, you know, gives people pause and some people used to criticize him saying like, Buddhists can't be angry and that's un-Buddhist, etc. But I think that he really wrote from a place of love and care of wanting Asian American Buddhists, the people in his communities, to be more widely represented. And so I think of that early book as him creating a sort of refuge for, you know, people like myself who were thinking about these issues of race and representation, but didn't see a whole lot of other people writing about them. So to answer your question, I suppose it's more, yeah, it is somewhat a call to action the book's title is also, in a way, continuing Aaron's legacy. You know, he the very last blog post he wrote was titled Be the Refuge, and that was also the name he wanted this new blog to be. And so, in a way, I think of this unwritten blog as an invitation for all of us to very creatively think, what does it mean to be the refuge for ourselves, for other people in the world? And that looks very broad. You know, for some Buddhists, that might look like meditation, mindfulness, chanting, ritual, and even broader, maybe that looks like writing, that looks like art, that looks like preparing food for one's loved ones. It can take many forms. And you've mentioned the Angry Asian Buddhist, uh, and he does pop up a lot in your text, but this is clearly your own work. Um, why do you think it was necessary to write this book? What, what was missing from popular Buddhist culture in the West, or what was what was missing? What was the lack of awareness that really called for him to name his own work, the angry Asian Buddhist, rather than just the Asian Buddhist, and then for you to feel, as a follow-on from that, that, that this book might serve some, some greater purpose, because clearly it's not a book written just for Asian Buddhists in America, right? It's for the wider Buddhist population. Yes, absolutely. Well, angry Asian Buddhists, just to answer that particular question is a pun on Angry Asian Man, who's probably much more broadly known, Phil Yu, the blogger. So Angry Asian Buddhist is kind of a riff off that. And oh, okay. it was really, yes, exactly. It was kind of, in a way, a skillful means. Aaron wanted people to stop and think because Angry Asian Man is already, Asians generally are seen as not rocking the, stereotyped, I should say, as not rocking the boat and not being angry. You know, if you think about it, angry angry black man or angry 
you know, fill in your blank white man. Like these all have very different valences just because of the way race is, you know, played out in the U.S. Um, yeah, but I think on top of angry Asian Buddhists, what made it even more interesting is that also particularly American perceptions of what Buddhism is, is usually like very opposed to anger. So people would just, it sort of like doubly makes you stop. No, Asians aren't angry. No, Buddhists aren't angry. What is this about? The second part of the question was also the relationship really between the two. So, you know, the angry Asian Buddhist obviously felt like he was part of, of something that was missing from, from wider Western Buddhist culture. And your book, in a sense, carries on that legacy. It builds on that. It gets into, in a sense, addressing something that's missing, I would say, in the kind of collective awareness about the role of Asians in the story of Buddhism in the West. So in a sense, your book is addressing a lack of awareness almost. You're kind of, I think you're responding to a need. Would that be true? Yeah, I would say so. Yes. It's, you know, difficult to talk about this topic without bringing up this, I'd say this notion of two Buddhisms, which the, and I know you've had this scholar Charles Prubish on your podcast previously, and he's credited with generally coining the term. I'd say the term has really taken on a life of its own in the four decades since. So there's a lot of use of really the concept, I'd say, in the popular media, where you kind of have two Buddhisms in the U.S. You've got white converts who tend to do sitting meditation or are seen as rational, maybe, you know, got frustrated with their Judeo-Christian upbringings, etc. So people have kind of an image of what that is. And that's often what you'll see in the mainstream Buddhist magazines. And then opposed to that, there's this idea of there being Asian immigrant Buddhists. Um, I think this is especially thinking about the large wave of immigrants from Asia post-1965 in the U.S. And I think that's what people tend to think about. And what, you know, for myself, it was very personal. As a young adult, I was going to these Vipassana or I should say inside and Zen centers and noticing like, hmm, there's just not a lot of non-white people here or people who are younger than baby boomers. So I feel a little out of place. <laughs> and then yeah. I would go to like Cambodian temples and Chinese or Vietnamese temples and feel, oh, where's like everyone between the ages of five and 15? <laughs> like I see little kids running around and the grandmas. So I sort of started wondering, like, are young adult Asian American Buddhists? I was in my 20s at the time. Are, where, where are they? Are they even around? And so partly um, Sumi, Sumi London Kim had this have these two wonderful anthologies of young Buddhist voices that she wrote back in 2001 and 2006, I think it was. And so she, for the first one, kind of quipped, like, I was lonely. I needed a boyfriend. And well, I didn't need a romantic partner at the time, but I did feel a little bit lonely being a young adult Asian American Buddhist. I just really wanted to know, where are the other ones? Like, do they exist? And that's kind of what got me started on looking for them and interviewing them. Yeah, and for listeners that aren't familiar with the work just yet, a large part of the book is made up by these interviews that you hold with a range of different Asian and Buddhists from America. And it's very interesting material, I think, for practitioners and academics alike. And perhaps we should talk briefly about the the phases as well, because this is another way you organize much of the content of the text. You You have these four phases in the life of, let's say, Asian Buddhism, coming into America, being established here, developing, changing, evolving, etc., etc. Could you give us a brief overview of those four periods? Sure. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't ever thought of it as phases since I just called them parts in the book. Right. Um, <laughs> but that's a really fascinating way to think about that. I like it. Um, right. So I actually think of the book as being structured around an idea of generations mm -hmm. and a lot of what's in this book is really just inspired by the 89 interviewees I talked to, as well as, of course, other conversations outside of that, and just listening very closely and putting these people in conversation with each other. And so this idea of generations really came out of an interview with one of my interviewees, Noah Alumit, uh, who is himself a writer, and he's Filipino. And he talked about himself as being a kind of first-generation American Buddhist. And I never really thought of the term, because when he described himself as a first-generation, he meant I'm the first generation in my family to be Buddhist in America. You know, he was raised Catholic. And he says, it's people like 
Jodo Shinshu Buddhists, for example, are often multi-generation American Buddhists. Their families have been Buddhists in America for multiple generations. Someone maybe who's the, you know, child of a, a Cambodian immigrant to the U.S., the Thai immigrant to the U.S., for example, might identify as a second-generation American Buddhist there. So in a way, I was really intrigued by this because we tend to think about Im- um, generation when it comes to Asian Americans in particular as purely immigrant generation, but he kind of put a different valence to that. So I realized this was actually a useful way to group the, you know, 89 interviews is a lot. So it was kind of difficult to think, how am I going to organize this material? So part one, which is titled Trailblazers, really focuses on the experiences of multi-generational, particularly Japanese American uh, within the Jodo Shinshu community. And part two, which is called Bridge Builders, focuses on these second generation young adults, and especially looks at the dynamics with them and their parents, but also with the broader culture at large. Um, And these are Asian Americans from a very wide range of ethnic backgrounds. And then part three, which I call integrators, is about these quote-unquote first-generation or convert Asian American Buddhists. And one reason I didn't want to use the word convert or often wanted to put it in scare quotes is that in my interviews, a lot of interviewees did this just that. They felt that this idea of being a convert Buddhist was kind of loaded or freighted with sort of valences that was harder for them to connect with, especially because convert to them often had the sense of being a white convert Buddhist. So part three really explores some of those dynamics. Um, and then part four, which I call Refuge Makers, includes interviews from all three of the previous chapters. And it's really looking more at these issues around Buddhism and social justice or Buddhism and representation. There's a distinction that we might make at this point between culture and practice. Uh, often when we talk about Buddhism, you know, as adopted by, you know, white folks in America or Europe or whatever, is that they're trying in a sense to engage with Buddhism without the religion. But I think another way of thinking about that is it's, it's also without the culture or it's the culture modified in a way that makes sense or fits with the certain expectations. But I also think that there's a certain almost allergic reaction to thinking more deeply about the wider culture of Buddhism in America. You know, you, when you speak to practitioners or even teachers often, the notion is I have my practice. The notion that they are part of a culture of practice or practices within a living culture is something that's often downplayed or simply ignored. A wider cultural project of trying to deny, deny or ignore or reduce the importance of the cultural role in all of these things, the, the, the formation of the self, the notion of what practice might be, the notion of what Buddhist is or what Buddhism isn't. Um, and perhaps that's most visible in something like secular Buddhism. Uh, there are a couple of points I've kind of made in there because I'm thinking out loud in response to what you said, but does that kind of culture practice distinction make any sense to you, especially with what you've you've learned from these interviews and speaking to people? Well, I'd say people who are trying to downplay culture are still very much embedded in culture. And I think it's interesting that, you know, some Buddhist groups in the U.S. are having have white affinity groups or some of them are called white awake groups. In other words, kind of examining that particular racial identity and the different one could even say cultures that have shaped that to different forces that have shaped that and how that plays out in their, in, you know, in their Buddhist practice, in their Buddhist communities. I think I can definitely understand the impulse to want to um, reduce culture from Buddhism. I, I would say this. I think that why I was really interested in exploring Asian American Buddhist as a sort of identity label, as a category, is precisely because there's a kind of tension there. Asian American is ethnically, culturally specific. But Buddhism is a universal religion. And none of my interviewees, you know, whom I talked to would say otherwise. They felt very much, of course, it's a religion that is and should be open to people of all backgrounds. I mean, it's really a missionizing religion in that sense. But I think what my interviews were concerned about is what are the implications when you say Buddhism is just some teachings disembodied from culture or practice when you know, people will say like, oh, that's just cultural Buddhism. That's just cultural Buddhism. That's kind of an inferior form of Buddhism. You're just wrapped up in these sorts of, 
you know, outmoded, backwards kinds of practices or beliefs, as if the people speak who themselves are speaking are not embedded in multiple cultures, are not shaped by histories. Yeah, yeah. I think that point about culture is an essential one, and I'd, I'd agree with you wholeheartedly. I just think that in this sort of um, this concerted project, which is not something that's often spoken to, of trying to eliminate the kind of well, one way has been to describe it as baggage. That, that's not a term I'd want to use. I just think it's not only potentially offensive, which is, is certainly something that, that could be the case, but I think it's primarily ignorant. And, and I think your point about there always being multiple cultures at play anyway is, is certainly the case. If I were to try and view it in a slightly different way, or a more sympathetic reading in a sense, I might say that um, part of that story is is almost an incapacity to recognise what is actually going on. And a sympathetic reading might say that they are attempting in a sense to understand the potentials of practice without culture that attempt in itself, you could argue, is a cultural practice, and I'd, I'd be quite fine saying that. And I think that is, in a sense, a consequence of the way culture has developed more broadly in the West, you know, from modernity to postmodernity to our attempts to figure out where we are right now. I wonder, without, you know, leaving these as, as simplistic dichotomies, how Asian Buddhists in America, whether they're first, second, third, or later generations, how they're dealing with that kind of challenge, how they're dealing with the challenge of respecting tradition that perhaps was part of their own family, and this wider cultural practice of attempting to understand ourselves today as modern contemporary folks. Is that something you you write about at all in the book that you speak with your interviewees about? Uh, Is it something you thought about yourself? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think probably in all of the all of the parts of the book, there there is that tension. I think mm, it's in, in part two, in particular, with the second generation Buddhists. I think was interesting to me. I actually followed the story quite closely of one person, Eric, and his struggle to sort. He was born into Buddhism, and his father was a very devout Buddhist, but he never really felt like Buddhism was his own. Partly it was a language barrier because he was always getting Buddhism through Chinese, but really his primary language was English. And so it really took for him going to college, meeting other Asian American Buddhists, also exploring Christianity, exploring other faiths to really make Buddhism his own. So each of the parts has a bit of an arc like that. And the arc of part two is about this sort of ongoing grappling with how to respect tradition, but recognizing that if one's parents grew up in Asia, let's say even in a predominantly Buddhist country, being in America is a completely different set of dynamics. And they certainly did struggle. I mean, I think it's just an ongoing conversation and ongoing grappling, this sort of part of a spiritual journey that continues to unfold. So it's something that I certainly think about personally and that my interviewees do as well. You know, it's a little bit of a different dynamic with the Jodo Shinshu multi-generational Buddhists. And yeah, there's a lot of concern there about how do you open this tradition so that it's not just associated with Japanese Americans. And of course, there are people who are not just Japanese American in the Jodo Shinshu community. How do you respect those cultural roots, but also adapt to this, you know, very much diversifying world that we live in now? And I'd say with the converts in part three, if I may just add, what's also really interesting is it was almost something like this in reverse, because these are people like myself who were not raised in the Buddhist tradition, who might not feel, who might feel in primarily white spaces that actually they would like to have some kind of more cultural and historical, some connection to Asia, but they may not be hearing any Asian chants in the spaces they're in, or Asian languages or Asian foods, you know, which is quite different than going to a Cambodian or Vietnamese temple, for example. And so there was part three, a lot of it is my conversation with them almost sort of seeking for these roots. And when the way they've received Buddhism is primarily through English language and often through insight or Zen meditation. So it's already mediated through a particular culture that may feel kind of divorced from Asian culture. If we look at some of the glossy Buddhist magazines in the States, such as Tricycle and 
the Shambhala Sun magazine in Wisdom. For many, many years, they've had these covers plastered by either white teachers or these kind of romanticized images of these ideal Asian teachers as almost a form of fetishism. And I, I wonder where we are today with all that. I mean, obviously, we're living in a moment in which there's this um, fervor of activism and questioning and discourse around race and identity and so forth, something that I sometimes sit uncomfortably with. But it has a purpose. It is part of a kind of wave that's pushing through society and is certainly in the positive raising awareness among folks. Are we seeing um, some kind of re-examination from the wider community in America and, and beyond with regards to the role of Asians in establishing Buddhism in the West so that this this history is, is starting, in a sense, to, to wake up a bit more? Yeah, I would say so. I think over the past few years, I mean, I think even the angry Asian Buddhist himself created change during his lifetime. He sort of made it uncomfortable for Buddhist magazines to only be publishing covers with showing white Buddhist, you know, often skinny, um, beautiful white Buddhist meditators or just the oriental monk figure. So he would just bring it up every time. And so he's kind of a burn their side, so to speak. So even that, I think, um, pushed change. Certainly, yes, it raises um, a huge topic. And with Black Lives Matter, there's a lot more being done around that. That, um, you know, my copy of Black and Buddhist, an anthology of Black Buddhist voices just arrived last week, for example. And I'd say scholars as well. Duncan Williams' excellent book, American Sutra, on the history of Japanese American Buddhists in the U.S. I think there is more being done in this direction. In terms of mainstream media representation, it's hard. I mean, Buddhists, you know, according to the Pew Forum, are maybe about 1% of the population. So in actual numbers, it's a very, very much a minority of that 1%, maybe about two thirds, actually more than two thirds are of Asian descent or of Asian heritage. But that's not what we generally would get an impression of with these Buddhist magazines still, I would argue. And we can parse that in many different ways. But I would say I see within Buddhist publishing in the magazine world, in the book world as well, that's a microcosm of American publishing more broadly, which is having a lot of conversations right now around structurally you know, when the vast majority of not just your authors, but your editors and your agents are white, when they are the gatekeepers, not surprisingly, a disproportionate number, you know, of white voices will be lifted. So what does it look like to have room for other other voices in what's a, in a marketplace that often will say to non-white voices, eh, I don't think there's really readership here. You know, I don't think there's really interest here. So these are all conversations I think that are going on. And I think there's still a lot more to be done and to a lot more conversations to have. This is my Sam Harris interruption, or as he once used to call it, housekeeping, which I quite like, really. Housekeeping. I don't think I've ever engaged in housekeeping. It sounds like the kind of thing upper middle class people used to do in the Victorian age. But anyway... That's besides the point, isn't it? This interruption serves to remind you of two things, and I'll keep it brief. Number one, this podcast now has a donation option on its website, imperfectbuddha.com, and I'm not going to manipulate you like Sam might. I'm just going to say a couple of straightforward things. Think about it. How much do you listen to this podcast? Really, how much have you got out of it? If the answer is very little, then skip ahead. But if you're a regular listener, who benefits from these kinds of interviews I hold and these kind of creative turns that I've been experimenting with, then you might want to give something back. And here's my thoughts on it. If you don't give something back to me, give something back to someone else. Perhaps to your favourite podcast. The other one, of course. Huh? Anyway, I think it's right that you do so. I do so myself. And it needs to happen really in this day and age. I know how much time and energy I put into all this, So, some of my favourite podcasts, well, they're doing exactly the same thing. And apart from those on the BBC or that belong to other professional organisations, the lesser ones, like this one, are usually put together by hard-working, inspired individuals trying to share quality content. So, give something back today, folks. Give something back. Secondly, well, 
as you should know by now, this podcast is sponsored by O'Connell Coaching. That's my coaching business. And if you don't know the spiel, I'll quickly give it to you in one minute max. I offer coaching, support, mentoring and guidance to those taking, well, a different kind of approach to spirituality and Buddhism. Waking up, coming to know your mind, dealing with your emotions, etc., etc., any of the themes we've tackled on the podcast can be faced in a one-to-one coaching dynamic. Many people find it useful. I've been refining and tailoring my approach over the last few years. I'm finding it more rewarding too, and it seems that other folks are too. Three options, coaching, Buddhist-style practice and engagement, and the shamanic stuff that well, a lot of people seem to be rather curious about, to the point that I might actually have a podcast episode on that topic soon, but shan't give away my secrets right now. The kind of information for O'Connell Coaching is now being placed all together at the same website, imperfectbuddha.com. Get in touch if you feel the need. So you've written this book, you've had a hell of a lot of conversations Obviously, these are going to have an impact on you personally. How have you changed your view of this situation since? Well, actually, I might rephrase that. How how have these conversations changed you as a person as you've gone through them? Because they must have taken up a lot of time. Yeah, I mean, this project is years in the making. I'm kind of joking. I don't really feel so much like a young adult anymore. It's been, mm-hmm. you know, eight years from the initial seed of the idea of this project to seeing it finally come out in book form. So it's been, it's been a journey. I'd say this project, maybe what I'm most grateful for. Well, certainly some, some of the 89 conversations have turned, you know, as just being able to meet such a, incredibly diverse range of people. I think I had a hunch that Asian American Buddhists would be a very diverse, broad category, but kind of being able to concretize that with even just little stories that people told me that I can still remember a reference. I think something I appreciated was like, you know, certainly I did not see eye to eye with all of my interviewees. And that was a great reminder that there's not one way to be Asian American Buddhist. For me, that was actually very freeing. I think before, when I really started to explore Buddhism in college, and particularly in these primarily white convert spaces, it just seemed to me that usually the spokespeople for Buddhism in America were often white, often white men or scholars. And this feeling like, oh, yeah, Asian Americans, maybe, oh, it's just cultural Buddhism. It's not as important. And that always sort of didn't sit quite well with me uh, when I went to Cambodia with my partner after we graduated from college, you know, I realized like, wow, this way of looking at the world means like America is full of a certain type of superior Buddhist meditating. And this country I'm now in is full of inferior Buddhists who are just chanting or bowing or making (laughs) making offerings. And I say this in that it can be very hard in the U.S. as a minority, I think both racially and religiously, not to internalize some of these feelings. Mm, And that's an awful... You know, that's an awful thing to feel. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I think when Aaron was writing for the Angry Asian Buddhist, he wanted Asian American Buddhists to know your voices matter and you're not alone in having some of these feelings. So for me, it made me realize when people would ask, like, I call it the meditation resume check. Like, how often do you meditate? How much do you meditate? And it, after writing this book, it's given me space to realize like, oh, like that's, that's in a set of assumptions that you understand Buddhism a certain way. And that's totally okay. But I don't have to subscribe to that same set of assumptions. So that's been very freeing, as well as, of course, just making some really wonderful friendships through the writing of this book. Yeah, you make some very interesting points there. And I think those are invaluable lessons and you know, we're, we're fortunate when we commit to these projects to, to get back the unexpected rewards, you know, from this kind of work. And uh, there are a couple of points you made, which I found very interesting. The, the, the one about uh, coming to a country and internalizing a certain idea of things by being there, you know, it's, we, we can't isolate, isolate ourselves from these things. And I think it's always interesting to hear from people who've actually lived significant periods of time in different cultures and, and had such experiences because they give you a, a, a view or a lens onto that culture, which is very difficult to, to gain otherwise. 
I think as well, you, you made me think while you were speaking how, because America, philosophically speaking, has such deep roots in, in, in various traditions of thought, but American pragmatism, coupled with the idea of the individual being so sacrosanct, it's almost, in a sense, looking back, inevitable that this obsessive focus in on the individual and their meditation practice would come about at some point, whether from Buddhism or somewhere else. And I think it's interesting that this is reflective of other challenges more broadly, culturally speaking, in the kind of, you know, individual and collective American psyche. How do you deal with this obsessive focus on the individual that's supposed to be responsible for everything? And what we see in you know, many communities which don't adhere to that is they, they're not just cultural Buddhism or cultural Judaism or something else, but they're, they're also points of refuge from that kind of idea about selfhood. And I think that's a very healthy thing. And I wonder to some degree if that's, that's not actually a useful antidote to, to, to actually help what, what some people are calling white Buddhism in America kind of grow up a little bit and move beyond this. I, I don't know. That's the thought that comes to mind. I, I, I could be completely off point, but I don't know if any of that makes sense to you or, or what your thoughts would be in regard to that. Yeah, definitely. I really like what you said about some of these communities being points of refuge um, from the idea of self. I was earlier this year reading uh, Kish Jen's book, Tiger Writing, and she's a Chinese-American author who, this is actually um, a series of lectures she gave at Harvard a number of years ago, actually. But she writes about some of these sort of ideas of like East and West and the individual and the collective. And I think in a very nuanced way, because it can be very easy then to just say, oh, all Asians are X way and oh, you know, quote unquote, Americans are Y way. And, but I think there is some truth to, there's certainly some truth to American culture. Just it's a culture that's developed that really people tend to get ahead if they act in certain individualist ways. And that being in Asia, often people tend to, you know, do better, get ahead, acting in more collectivist ways. And I think what was really interesting for me to read her book is to hear her reflections as an Asian American. And she's also citing psychological studies of Asian Americans as being people who kind of actually often are straddling the tensions between the two. And I think that that's what makes it really interesting to go to diasporic community Buddhist temples in the US, for example, that it can be both kind of a refuge from a hyper individualistic focus. And it's also a space where the kind of tensions between these two get to play out in different ways, get to play out generationally. So I have a lot of appreciation for my times, you know, at these temples in the US and also having spent quite significant amounts of time living, particularly in Cambodia and Thailand and a little bit in Taiwan as well, that really has broadened my view on Buddhism and given it kind of a more transnational look, uh, transnational view, and where it always often feels coming back to the U.S., it can feel quite insular and even the ways that certain discussions are had, you know, even I think about race in America, that the way we have these discussions are very different than how we talk about them in Europe or certainly in other places. So I do agree with you on a lot of those points and on the value of being placed into cultures outside of yeah one's own, outside of what is familiar to oneself is really important and valuable. Mm -hmm. Perhaps we can use that as a bridge to talk about the world beyond the borders of America. How much has your your work with this book allowed you to think beyond America? Has it given you that opportunity? Are you able to apply any of the conclusions or the thoughts beyond America? Or or is it really a project that's that's born and lives there? Well, I could say, I guess it was a project that was, I think it was born in, yeah, in, not just in the US, but also in Asia, because you know, I've been traveling back and forth pretty much from, well, my whole life, but um, especially sort of, I'd say, buddhistically um, traveling between Buddhist spaces in the U.S. and in Asia. Um, so Europe, I haven't spent as much time there or in South America or Canada. I think that in 2016, I published an article on Buddha Dharma that was the beginnings of this research. And I heard from readers from 
readers of Asian heritage in Europe, in South Africa, in different places, saying that they resonated with what I was writing. So I'm sure that there are different nuances. Um, some of my interviewees, I should also add, are have lived in Canada for significant amounts of time. So there's kind of a North American aspect of this going on. So yes, of course, there are um, particularities and differences, I think, across these spaces. But there's still a lot, I think, that um, that that would resonate even beyond the borders of the U.S. And I think perhaps one of the most interesting thing is I wrote this book. Well, actually, it was two books. I wrote a very academic version and then scrapped that entirely and started from scratch and wrote this version. So the years that it took for me to write this book, I was pretty much living in Southeast Asia that entire time, which just gave me a really interesting vantage point. In some ways, I think I kind of needed that sort of critical distance to not be within America, but to give me a little bit of space to write about these issues and think about these issues from a different vantage point. For listeners um, who are thinking about purchasing this book, there are lots of very interesting sections to it. In particular, there's a section at the back. There are two of them, actually. Uh, one has a list of the questions that uh, Chen Zing used. And there's also a list of questions, which uh, she asked them what they might like to ask to other Asian Buddhists. And I'm going to pick out a few from there to to ask her and hopefully not put her on the spot too much. So Let's start off with this one. How do you make Buddhism applicable to your daily life? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I'm steeped in Buddhism. So, you know, the books I read, the writing I do. Mm. Um, during pandemic, it's been quite hard for, my, you know, my partner's Buddhist. He's a scholar of Southeast Asian Buddhism. So mm. uh, we kind of don't escape Buddhism, ever. <laughs> uh, but we really do miss being able to travel to Buddhist countries, of course, but also even just more locally here in the San Francisco Bay Area. There are so many wonderful temples, meditation centers that we can't go to right now because of the pandemic. So that's something that we miss a lot during this time. So a, a better question might have been, what do you do to get away from Buddhism? But <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Well, I go to my parents and they're not Buddhist. <laughs> oh, okay. I eat good food. <laughs> I have plenty of non-Buddhist friends. Yeah, so... <laughs> Yeah, that last one's a good one, I think, because, you know, if you end up being part of these kind of insular cultures where there's only that, it's it's not good. It's not good for your overall development and growth. Saying all that, though, um, is it possible to answer a question such as what does Buddhism mean to you? Because obviously, having in a way multiple relationships with Buddhism is this non-existent entity, right? It's, it is many things, uh, and we should all know that by now. But we might say, you know, what does this, mm, well, life so far lived in relationship with this thing, this complex, multifaceted cultural thing mean to you, if it's possible to say? Mm. Yeah, that's a hard question. Mm. I can just say it, it um, at one point in my book, I talk about my relationship to Buddhism feeling like tea steeping in water. So just sort of over time, it infuses the flavor of that water and completely transforms its its scent, its taste. So that's the way Buddhism permeates my life feels a little bit like that. It's hard for me to describe otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's nice. I like that. So culture is a big feature of all this. And talking about community, you've mentioned various uh, places that you're not able to go to. So I'll, I'll turn this into a two-part question. First of all, are you do you feel like you are part of a specific Buddhist community at this time of your life? And the question here is, what kind of Buddhist community would you like? And I think that second question might be better uh, changed a little bit to say, well, if more people were to take on board some of the input from Asian Buddhists, in America, if we were to see some kind of uh, growth or change, I'm, I'm really not sure what, what term to use at present, uh, what kind of community would you like to see develop out of greater awareness amongst white Buddhists in America of the diversity of Buddhism there? Okay, so the first question, well, what Buddhist communities am I a part of now? Um, I would say that 
being kind of non-sectarian and having affinities for different types of Buddhism and especially appreciating having friends from a very wide range of Buddhist traditions, it's not particularly an easy question to answer, but I do want to name my grad school at the Institute of Buddhist Studies in Berkeley, California, which is rooted in the Jodo Shinshu tradition. I just feel a lot of yeah, I feel a great affinity and appreciation for that space, the Jodo Shinshu Center in Berkeley itself, which is written into the book. But something I love about that space is that it is both very deeply historically rooted in a tradition, but it's been a space that's hosted many Buddhist conferences and Buddhists from all kinds of different backgrounds. When I was doing my chaplaincy program in my master's program, yeah, there's Tibetan Buddhists, there's, you know, monks from Taiwan, there's nuns from Taiwan. So that is kind of, in my mind, maybe one of my spiritual homes because of that kind of diversity there and the types of conversation that are possible. And I should mention also non-Buddhists take classes at the Institute of Buddhist Studies. So our education was also enriched, you know, by Jesuit priests, et cetera, et cetera. In terms of a Buddhist community, yeah, what I'd like to see, I mean, in a way, read the book. <laughs> One will get a very full answer to that question. But I talk about this idea of culturally engaged Buddhists, and I think that's applicable for everybody. So people who are really able to think deeply about the types of cultures, and I mean this very broadly, not just about race or ethnicity, but even whether it's pop culture or we are always affected and shaped by many different cultures, whether it's sci-fi or cartoons or something that one really loves and has a passion for, that shapes how we view the world, how we engage with others. So I think I really love this idea of yeah, spaces where we can have conversations, sometimes uncomfortable conversations, but just these heartfelt, sincere conversations that I was able to have through the course of writing this book. And I'd say also that writing this book was very much shaped by my chaplaincy training, my training as a spiritual caregiver, which is a practice that's very much grounded in deep listening. So Presenting, having that in community, also having food and eating food together, that's also a really nice thing, I think. Um, yeah, things that can kind of break down some of these barriers we've we've constructed to have conversations across generation, across racial and ethnic lines, across socioeconomic lines, etc. That's very inspiring to me. Yeah, interesting. And it feels sometimes that um, the need to talk about culture more broadly is there because it will enable us to get beyond that to some degree, not ignore it, not to eliminate it, not to pretend it's not there, but to get to a place where it's, in a sense, integrated into our sort of collective understanding of how we we coexist together. Um, and I think it's interesting because, again, if I were to take a sympathetic reading of this, this, let's say, resistance or reaction against talking about, what well, do we go back, first of all, anger, um, whether it's the angry Asian Buddhist suggesting that, that that happened, and then talking about representation, then talking about cultural identities and so forth. On the one hand, I can appreciate why people would be resistant to that. I think from one perspective, there's a sense of not wanting to get mixed up in all of this complexity. But on the other hand, of course, as you rightly said when you were answering one of the earlier questions, uh, culture doesn't go away just because you ignore it or you pretend it's not there. That said, the last question I want to ask you does speak to this, and I think your book basically answers the question, but I'd like to hear from you anyway, uh, which is, do you think that ethnic or racial representation matters when it comes to religion? And let's just focus that a little bit more when it comes to meditation. Yeah, I think it matters. <laughs> it matters because it matters to meditators, to the people themselves. I mean, yes, we can talk about abstract philosophical ideal etc. But on the ground, in person, yeah, you know, like try try telling a black Buddhist that their race doesn't matter, right? You can wish it all you want, but their race inflects the way they live in the world. And that doesn't change when they walk into a meditation center. So I really do believe these issues matter. And that belief, I think, really just comes from a place of listening to people and caring for them. It may not matter to certain people as much, for example, or may not feel as pertinent to their own personal experience. But it does matter to others whom are their, you know, their Dharma siblings, part of their Dharma family. Okay, well, thank you, Chen Zing. Can I ask you one final question before we sure. run out of time here? Of course. Where to next? What's your next project? And 
Have you been cooking something up while stuck at home in the the quarantine and the lockdown? Yeah, I'm actually I'm finishing a memoir which is about Buddhist chaplaincy and grief and spiritual friendship. So it's a bit of a different project, a lot fewer footnotes, although there's still some. Um, but that's kind of my primary focus right now. Of course, in addition to just getting ready to launch this first book. Great. And when will the book be coming out exactly? Uh, January twenty sixth, twenty twenty one. So in about a month from when we're recording right now. Great. And remind us、uh, who the publisher is. The publisher is North Atlantic Books. Oh, great, great, great! Thank you. Well, listeners, you'll want to check the book out. I've taken a good look at it.、Um, I didn't get to read it all yet, but I've still got quite a few days of lockdown myself, so I'll be finishing off that text. And、uh, it's interesting. It's an interesting exploration, and I just want to、uh, ensure some of the cautious listeners that although this is an academic text in part. The style is not, and it's perfectly readable, and it's very interesting, and it's not a, it's not something that's telling you how to think or what to do next. So some people I know are quite worried about engaging with some of the cultural material from that perspective. It's um, it's a very interesting read, and I think it will expand people's appreciation and sense of the complexity of of Buddhism today, basically, um, in America, but uh, also beyond. So. Thank you for writing it, Chen Zing, and I wish you all the best, both with this book and your new project. And、uh, that's all. Thank you so much, Matthew. You take care. Have a enjoy the rest of your day and the rest of the festive seasons. And let's all cross our fingers that the vaccines get out nice and quickly, and we can return to at least some sense of normal. Yes. <laughs> Cuckoo, as they say in Italy. Or hey there, if you're American, and you're right, mate. If you're from the UK, look, really, how many of these episodes have you listened to? How much have you got out of these conversations and all that hard work we put into them? If you've gained value from the podcast, go ahead and make a donation. Give something back. Call it Dana if it makes it more palatable. You know, it's the right thing to do. We get so much from the internet for free. That we too often forget, the hardworking men and women are giving up their time, energy, and effort to make it for you. None of it is free. That includes this podcast. Visit imperfectbuddha.com. Scroll down on the right for the donation button, and do your part. Thank you.